Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are. On our phones and in the language we speak. And yes, you know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point. Because politics needed a rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Go the podcast. When you guys are listening to this, Samantha and I will be in this country's capital, Washington, D.C. We are here for a little conference moment. And of course, you know, there'll be content and and all the things. So if anyone has any D.C. recommendations, activities, restaurants, bars, things that they suggest we we must see, we must do, please Mm. let us know because we're here. We're here in D.C. And also, if we don't get to it this time, we'll add it to the list. This is not going to be our only DC trip, but it is the first DC trip that Maddie and I are doing together. Which is kind of crazy. It's you know what's even crazier is that I was what? actually born in DC. Oh, and That's- I have literally only been back once in my life when I was ten. And just given my career path, you know, it's just kind of crazy that I haven't been more. That is true. Well, okay, one comment followed by question is you know how like everyone has their like favorite fun fact i feel like that one is yours because there mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm gonna start a penny jar for every time i heard <laughs> that fact second yeah. is what were you guys doing in dc back in the day what do you mean like why were we there yeah my dad played soccer there he played for the mls team oh that's sick dc united this explains the, the year soccer- i was born yep he won this. the first MLS championship in DC when I was born. Safe to say, best year of his life. The ten year was literally a ten year anniversary of that championship. So <laughs> literally like not even anything politically related. And we did do incredible. some like tourism activities when we went back, but like I don't I don't really remember. Ten? Like that's so long ago. That's yeah, weird. It's like an age where it's like you remember snippets. Like yeah. you're a person for sure, but it's like yeah, 16 snippets. years ago wild whoa that's actually really weird. <laughs> i was like thinking i was like maybe 22 i was like oh it's only been a little bit over 10 years since i've been there no like i'm i'm going on 20 years since i've been there because it's like i feel like everyone has like a default adult age that they are that they like walk yeah. themselves mine's like from. always 22 i think <laughs> i don't know why <laughs> But like it totally, it's got to be a thing because it's like then you like contextualize you're like oh well that wasn't that long ago. Like I said, like that's like a weird age where it's like you remember certain things super vividly and other things like no way, no way. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm trying to think. Last time I was there was in college, just for a little weekend rendezvous, and did like a handful of like cute activities. But it's so funny. I still have like I've done some of the touristy activities, but not 
like the next level towards you. But I feel like that's not my, that's not my vacation type. It's like standing in front of a wall or a monument and going, yay, thumbs up. But I, I feel like it. that is why you go to DC, especially, you know? Yeah, it's fair. Like, I don't know if there's much else down there, you know, like, except for see the place where our country was, was built, you know? It is kind of cool, like, given all of the, I guess, because we're political nerds, that it, yeah. it would be cool to us, but and I've always been a U.S. history. That was the only class I liked growing up. So I'm like, I find it interesting. Well, speaking but, of classes, that's such a good teaser for what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. Yeah. That's actually, yeah. I think Which I talked about it, in fact, with them. Wow. That was something I said. Frequent flyer miles on that one. I know. I was talking about how chemistry made me cry. Oh, which is fair. Which genuinely. Yeah. Fuck a half-life. I'm trying to think of... <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that trauma on this monday i'm trying to think what was like what was your do you think that was your worst class ever most ms 100 percent. trying to think what mine was it might have been french it was either i french never or really math. liked i also my math classes were also pretty terrible but chemistry was like really hard for me because chemistry is a lot of math yeah a thousand percent um, look at us already kicking off the the classroom talk which we will continue with our guest today totally. there is one little thing i just wanted to talk about which was the trump dinner God. with kanye and nick fuentes and just now see- seeing and hearing all of their commentary about about the event is entertaining and I just find it all very embarrassing for them so let's just paint the picture really fast it's chaos because former President Donald Trump is renewing attention to his long history of turning a blind eye to bigotry after dining with a Holocaust-denying white nationalist and Kanye West just days into his third campaign for the White House. Also, I am firm in my stance of not calling Kanye West yay. Sorry. I'm with you. Okay, I'm absolutely cool. with you on that. Like, yep. Yeah. He doesn't like, deserve, like, no. Yeah, I'm like, no, I don't care. Anyways, so again, Trump had dinner last Tuesday at Mar-a-Lago with Kanye and Nick Fuentes, who is the far right activist who has used his online platform to spew anti-Semitic and white nationalist rhetoric. And then Trump in a series of statements Friday said he had never met and knew nothing about Fuentes before he arrived with Kanye at at Mar-a-Lago. But Trump also did not acknowledge Fuentes' long history of racist and anti-Semitic remarks, nor did he denounce either man's defamatory statements. Trump wrote of Ye on, oh, no, sorry, Kanye, oh my God, (laughs) on his social media platform that, quote, we got along great. He expressed no anti-Semitism, and I appreciated all of the nice things he said about me on Tucker Carlson. He added, why wouldn't I agree to meet? (laughs) That would be the equivalent of, like, literally someone being, like... Oh my god, I love your shoes. And mm-hmm. being like, okay, so we should meet. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. No, cool. 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 I cool. Can't. So Ugh. then Kanye shared details of the dinner in a video that he posted to his Twitter account on Thursday. Kanye said he had traveled to Florida to ask Trump to be his 2024 running mate. <laughs> <laughs> so Kanye wants to run for president. Trump wants to run for president. And Kanye actually thought with Trump's ego, he would be like, oh, okay, I'll be VP this time. 
Imagine. Imagine. And so Kanye also said that the meeting had then grown heated with Trump perturbed. (laughs) Kanye said perturbed by his request and Kanye angered by Trump's criticism of his estranged wife, Kim Kardashian. When Trump, this is, this is Kanye said this, when Trump started basically screaming at me at the table, telling me I was going to lose, I mean, has that ever worked for anyone in history? Telling Ye that I'm going to lose? You're talking to Ye, said Kanye. Kanye also said Trump was really impressed with Nick Fuentes, whom he described as an as actually a loyalist and said he'd asked he asked trump (laughs) why when you had the chance did you not free the january sixers referring to the defendants who were alleged to have participated in the deadly insurrection on the u.s capitol on january 6 2021 trump kept denying that he knew nick fuentes fuentes said he did not mean to like get trump in any trouble and like by coming to the dinner and like he just wants to protect trump basically and trump said kanye should not run for president and that his followers should vote for trump instead so have you ever seen the movie dinner for schmucks no that sounds great this is watch that movie and then this is this is that i the way in which i would give all my toes on my left foot to be in this dinner on a fly on the wall a fly on the wall can you imagine they're like yelling at each other by like who's gonna run for president i want to like i the thing is i want to know if there was ketchup here Like that's really the biggest Trump threw more ketchup on the wall. A thousand percent. Like, has he been banned from you know having ketchup around him? I, you know, I just want to mm. know what the scene of that situation is. This whole thing is just chaotic and a headache, embarrassing for sure for so many reasons for so many people, including this country. But like, I don't know. It's a, it's the game of who's more delusional. You know, it's. it's Especially it's Kanye, so like Kanye, like, okay, this, and this is giving no one credit, but for what it's worth, Trump who notoriously has this big ego, like you were saying, who was actually president of the United States. God help us all. Why would he be like, you know what? I'm going down a rank. Both are delusional. Sometimes just amazes me on a daily basis that certain people on this earth exist, like what Same. happens in their brains. Same. And these are all examples of people that I feel that way about. 100%. It's just so It's dinner for weird. schmucks, truly. And now mm. add that to your movie. Well, what do, how do I watch those? I don't know. I've, I've, I did recently watch it. It might have been on Netflix. I forget. But, oh my God. I just, waiting for the SNL skit. For sure. For this, for even sure. though it's this already is, an SNL skit. It's an SNL skit. Like, this is the thing, and this is always the the better light from the Trump presidency, was that it was so bad, it was so chaotic, and obviously so many terrible things were done and not trying to take away from that. But some of it was just so absurd, it was funny. Mm-hmm. It's, it Wild is something times. you can look back, hopefully. Not quite yet, but... We'll be able to look back when we're maybe old and gray and be like, I can't believe we lived through that. That was pretty fucking hilarious. Anyways. Well, yeah, just needed to talk about that for a hot sec. That's fair. And before we get into this interview, 
which it is time for. It is time for the interview. So do you want to introduce our fabulous guest today? I do. You know, I'll even sit up for it. So this week's episode is with Nicholas Ferroni. He is an education activist and also a teacher. So you may know him from Instagram. I have seen him on TikTok as well. Anyways, we have such a interesting, in-depth, fun conversation, a little bit of trauma for Maddie about chemistry, as we mentioned. But anyways, about education policy, raising teachers' wages in this country, talking about the teacher shortage, talking about where education is in the U.S., where he thinks it's going to go, what we need to do, and all of those things. So let's get into it. So without further ado, here's Nicholas. You are an education activist. You are a teacher. And we got to know the background. How did you come to this career? How did you say like to yourself, like, teaching, this is for me. That's what we're doing. I mean, I wish I could say I wanted to be a teacher in high school. I think it's kind of karma. I feel like now I'm in education. I'm, mm. My students are doing to me what I put my teachers through when I was in school. I mm. honestly, I always had amazing educators growing up. I mean, my kindergarten teacher was like my second mom. I had amazing history teachers. My coaches played a pivotal role. But I'll be honest, Indiana Jones to me was the coolest person on the planet. And I'm like, that's what I'll do. I'm going to go on adventures during the weekend. I'll be that professor. I'll be that academic and it's kind of like that was kind of the the inspiring moment. But I honestly, I always loved history and I was an art person as well. And I always, I am who I am because of my teachers. So I felt like even though I didn't know it, somehow it was going to end up back in this position at some point, which I'm literally back at the high school I went to. Are you? Oh okay. Yes. I love that. That's awesome. Well, through some of your work too, you have developed Teach the Truth campaign. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? What does it focus on? How did it come about? Well, it's it's interesting because obviously, I mean, growing up as a straight white man in like history class, it's like I was always convinced that straight white Christian men did everything. I, I didn't realize women did so much. I didn't know minority groups did so much because they're always footnotes in history. Mm -hmm. And the irony being when we do discuss like even women for particular, we always discuss like the seamstress or the nurses. We don't talk about all the badass women who've contributed so much. Mm -hmm. And I was always kind of convinced that, you know, everyone played a part, but of course my group was so significant. So when I went to college, I went to Rutgers on a football scholarship, but I was always big into obviously cultural studies and history. And I took my first like women's studies course. And I remember learning about all these badass women throughout history. And my, con my question was always the same. I'm like, you know, if, if they did so much, why are they not in history books? Because to me, the litmus test for everything is history books. You know, mm -hmm. if they're not in history books, they, they mustn't have done anything. And I think most people kind of think that way. And I remember learning about people like Deborah Sampson, who fought in the American Revolution as a soldier, and, and you know, Hedy Lamarr, who kind of invented Wi-Fi, and Victoria Woodall, who was like the first woman to run for president in the 1870s. And I remember learning about that. And I remember my, my professor, was, who was female, was like, she's like, you know, Nick's like history sexist. And I'm like, how could history be sexist? It's like just facts. And then she's like, the word history is sexist. And I'm like, how could a word be sexist? And she wrote the word history on the board. And it was the first time where she's like, his story. I mean, my mind mm -hmm. was well. I'm like, yeah. my whole life that has been right in front of my face. And I didn't realize it. And then I had the same experience when I had my first, you know, black history course. You know, it's yeah. it was the same concept where it made me realize that it's not what people did in history. It's who records history and who documents it, which kind of dictates so much. Mm -hmm. And I was, I mean, I grew up in a very diverse community. My, my best friends were African-American. I was on it. So I was very diverse and very kind of included in everything. But for most people, it's not that same perception. So right. 
once I became a teacher, I realized that, and I've come to the assumption, and I think most people agree, we indirectly teach kids to be sexist, to be homophobic, to discriminate, because we downplay the roles of so many people in, in, in their contribution in history in general. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think I'm like, the only people who should learn more about women's history than girls and women are boys and men. The only people who should learn more about black history than people of color are white people. And it applies the same thing to every situation. Because to me, history not only teaches empathy and understanding, but it just, it proves that everyone contributed. And I, mm-hmm. I feel like those stories are so powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, speaking of that power, you've brought some light to that through your work as an activist. And I'm curious how that really began for you. How did you get into activism and its cross-section of education? And where, I guess, has that you know brought you? Like, where have you brought that activism? I mean, I will say this. Like, my mom would joke. She always knew I would help people because I was the kid who beat up somebody because they were stepping on ants and ants couldn't defend themselves. And I always was like the kid who would bully. I, I hate to say it, but I'd beat up the bully mm-hmm. because I just didn't like when people were being oppressed or attacked or people couldn't defend themselves or not being helped out. For activism, again, like I, I've had a very good life. You know, I've had a point of privilege my entire life uh, because I am a certain way, because I look a certain way. You know, I, even a lot of my press, I, I am not the best historian in the world. But I know a lot of my work comes from my platform, what I do, my my age, my my demographic, and so on. So I felt like there was nothing better to do with my platform than to advocate for those who may not have the platform. I also think it's, I hate to say it, but it's women have always been advocating for women's rights. You're not the problem. We are the problem. Like men are the ones stripping. So it's like, I have to be the advocate. You know, the same thing applies to race. I feel like I'm a part of a group that's has a history Obviously, things are better now, but as a history of limiting other groups. So I feel like as my role, it's not only an obligation, but it's it's what I should do to advocate for people, but also to be that role model for my students, you know, to yeah. be that person for my students. I wasn't, I'll be the first to say, I wasn't always the best person. I had toxic masculinity traits. I was the captain of the football team. I wasn't a horrible person, but I viewed women a certain way that I no longer do. Unfortunately, it took me having female students to get to that point. You know, a man shouldn't have to, a man shouldn't wait to have a daughter to become a feminist, if very simply stated. Yeah. And I feel like it's just made me so much more active and proactive in that role to just try to level the playing field, but try to bring awareness to things that just because they're, just because they're good doesn't mean we can't make them better. Totally. I love all of that. Well, we are going to dive into this topic of like education much, much deeper. But before we do, we always like to like take a step back and go into our I have a stupid question segment, which as the teacher, you're probably like, how dare you say that? But, no such thing as stupid questions. <laughs> no such thing. Just- but we have a few like just terms and things we want to run through to kind of get a, our foundational understanding of some of these things and then we can dive deeper. But to kick it off, we want to talk about what is common core and where and how is this taught? Can you kind of explain what that really looks like. Oh, I mean, I could get deeply rooted in the history of the common <laughs> core being, you know, being promoted with, you know, the Gates Foundation and promoted through governors to implement this common core as a federal standard for education. It was also tied to the park test, which is no longer administered, which was this national test, which states had to adopt in order to get state funding. So the common core was just basically a federal kind of, uh, well, it was not federal as far as the Department of Education, it was kind of governor's mandated these states to adopt this sort of curriculum. 
which covers these topics, which was tied to certain standardized testing and tied to a certain foundation in particular. But it was honestly, it's the Common Core wasn't that different than what we teach now, and it wasn't that different than what it came what came before it. It was just a very specific set of standards which focus on certain values, uh, certain focuses, whether it's critical thinking, whether it's certain things that teachers had to focus on and had to touch on, which became adopted by the states. It's no longer even used in most states. I think there's maybe one state which still utilized the Common Core. But it was basically just implemented to kind of create this federal guideline for education standards. Yeah. Did you ever have to teach it or? We we did for a few years. It was implemented here because, again, you know, it's and ironically enough, not to get too deep into it, but the Gates Foundation wanted to push this sort of common core on, on the country. So they got the governors to adopt it, and the governors forced the State Department of Education to adopt it. And then we had to adopt it. I touched on it. Did I change how I teach? Not so much. I still focused on the content I focused on because it's insane for me to think that anybody can tell every state what to teach or what's important to that state depending because every state has different needs. Every student has different needs. It'd be yeah. the same thing if I taught the same exact way to every single student. Mm -hmm. So we touched on it. We did what we had to do and we got through it. And it's funny. I always joke around about education because I say the one thing I love about religion is the Messiah only comes back once, but in education, every year we have a new Messiah who knows how to fix education. But every year it's, there's an always a turnover and mm. teachers kind of, we've outlasted so many different turnovers because of our skill set, because we do, we do so well. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say like, how do you deal with that? Because I remember like when I was in school, it was like, there was so much emphasis on learning for tests. It was just like constantly just turning that out. And now I see it like when I go to learn about a new topic, I see those holes. Like I see exactly why I didn't learn them or where that was and what the focus was. But I know that then if I talk to someone a few years younger than me, that they had a different experience that they were like learning different things. And so like, I'm curious from a teacher's perspective, you know, like how do you pivot and like how much do you pivot? And yeah. is that sort of teacher to teacher? What does that look like? It's It depends. I mean, teachers... For the most part, and this is the one thing I love about teaching, is we, we do things because we care about students. So we will never do anything that we think is counterproductive to your success, your happiness. And in many cases, I hate to say it, but teachers will break the rules to support their students. I mean, we see that in certain states that are passing certain legislation to attack certain groups. Teachers are willing to put their jobs on the line because they want their students to feel safe, to feel loved, and feel secure. And that's yeah. why we do what we do. And I feel like a lot of teachers will challenge the system and the policies because they know it's not what's best for students or they know it's not what's best for their students. So we've had the pivot at the same time. I mean, it's it's funny because I always feel like the teachers and schools are not failing students. The system is failing teachers, parents, and schools. And think about what you just said too, as far as, as, far as testing. Like there's a big push for merit pay in a lot of states where they want to base its teacher salary based on student performance. I'm considered one of the best at what I do, and I would never want to receive merit pay. It would be nice to know I make, because I work a lot harder than what I'm getting paid, but I also would not want to look at you and say, you know, you know, Sam, I don't care if you're depressed or suicidal or dealing with something. I need you to study because I, I need you to do well because I need to get paid. Totally. Yeah. And I would never want to put my salary above your, your emotional health, your happiness, and your success. And that's mm -hmm. what merit pay does. It forces me to see you as a test score, not as a human being who's developing into something or struggling with something. Mm -hmm. So I feel that like that's so the biggest issue. But then people make it seem like I don't want to be accountable. No, I care too much about you to want to be held accountable to a test score. 
Yeah. That is such a good point. Like I like we are not math girls at Girl on the Guff. Like we are notoriously bad at math. It's become a running joke. And nonetheless, like if I were tested in math the same way everyone else was in class, I would be screwing your salary, you know? Like, but then if you gave me a history test or an English test, then it'd be like, oh, you got a raise. And I feel like that just doesn't make any sense. So I think it's good to bring some attention to it. But I also think what you said about sort of the social emotional side of things leads us perfectly to the next question, which is what is social emotional learning? It's interesting because I'm torn on the whole social emotional learning aspect because as educators, I think we've been doing it forever. You know, when when my uncle passed away, my coaches gave me more time. My teachers gave me more time. They talked to me. They counseled me. Every teacher, you know, again, the teachers teach from the heart. You know, it's like we care about you first. We educate you second. Social emotional learning, I think, is more of just being the the, the buzzword of what teachers and schools have been doing for a long time. But now it's just an official terminology for it. At the same time, it's it's one of those things which I feel like it's setting schools up to fail anyway, because we all we do is try to help students. You know, at the same time, we're putting more of an onus on focusing on social emotional learning, yet we're not set up to help you succeed socially and emotionally. So, for example, in my school, we have so the I think it's the Association for School Psychologists only mandate one school psychologist for 500 students. So one person is for 500 students. My school, we have 2,600 kids. We have one school psychologist, like one school doctor. Counseling, the Counseling Association says their recommendation is one counselor for 250 students. So you're telling me, how is a counselor ever going to get to know, help, and follow up on students when they have 250 students? Most of my students haven't even met their counselor because they just, they schedule and they, everything's through email. Mm-hmm. But it's like we're, we're promoting all the stuff, but then we're putting more of an expectation on teachers, counselors, school staff that we can't meet rather than the best thing would be to do would be to mandate hiring more counselors, hiring more school psychologists, giving me a smaller class size so I can actually talk to every single student every single day and know if there's something going on and, and get to know you personally. And it's funny because these are not my solutions. These are solutions that people have been preaching for decades but things like that's why it's like social emotional learning. It sounds great and buzzworthy, but they're not providing the resources for schools to actually implement it in the most effective way they can. Totally. That's such an interesting point. I yeah. And then you just like look at things like the teacher shortage and how it's like there are so many almost like bigger problems that need to be fixed in order to, I guess, put an emphasis on something like that or expand that emphasis that, you know, like you said, teachers have already been doing for so long. So that is interest- an interesting point. But moving on to the next question is what is education inequity? So education equity is something that I think has been given a bad rep. And it's funny how, like we can even CRT, like critical race theory, mm-hmm. like which people for some reason assume is happening in school and hasn't happened. But for some reason, I don't know where people think it's happening when it's not. Like mm-hmm. education equity, the term equity is such a, a bad term for some reason. When in fact, it's something else that that teachers do on a regular basis. You know, to me, edu- education equity is sharing distinct voices in class, sharing, making sure everyone's represented, making sure everyone has a place, making sure everyone has an opportunity. But it could also be as simple as as an educator. So I hate to say, for example, but, you know, I tell my students, I don't treat you equally. I treat you equitably. And I give them an example. I said, for example, if one of my students comes in and their father passed away two days earlier and I have an assignment due, 
How horrible would it be if it says, I don't care about your loss. This work has to be due today. That's equal. Equitable is family first, whatever you need, let me know, I'll worry about this later on. You know, mm -hmm. that's equitable. Equitable is giving each person what they need, not treating everyone the same. But then what other people say, it's funny because everybody's like, everyone should be treated the same. I'm like, okay. So I have two students who are blind, so they shouldn't have an aide help them around school. So I have students in wheelchairs, so they shouldn't have ramps, give them stairs. Like that's equal. That's unfair that they have a ramp. How dare they have, a, you know, it's like people don't realize that equitable also applies to physical disability and, and, and emotional disabilities in that sense. So mm -hmm. equitable is not just about teaching about race or gender or sexuality or anything like that. Equitable applies to so many different facets that public schools offer students that right. may not, they're not equal, but absolutely. You tell someone that a, a person in a wheelchair shouldn't have a ramp, that's basically what they're saying when they say, you know, things should, equity is a bad thing. No, without right. equity, there wouldn't be opportunity for those students. It's mm -hmm. an access element of it more than anything. It's like access to the education, access to the resources. That's really like where it comes in. But I am curious to your point about like it having sort of a bad connotation. Is there anything specific that you can sort of hang your hat on about that? Like well, where did it like all go wrong for the term equity? Well, it's it's interesting because I'm completely independent politically wise. Obviously, I, I like certain views that lean to one side because they're more supportive of public education, not privatizing, which is what I believe in. At the same time, it's it's funny because teachers have become very demonized over the last few years. And it, it, I'm a good teacher. All I do is meet amazing teachers who give their hearts and souls and money every single day to their students. And they're getting attacked as being horrible people who do not care. And it's solely for political reasons because they're a target. I also point out that in the 1950s and 60s, educators were called communists because they wanted to integrate schools. They were called communists. How dare you force your education, your equity, this integration on us, white schools only. And the irony being, fast forward to the present day, now people are attacking schools because we're teaching about black history. Not about CRT, just about basic black history. You know, things that kids should learn about. When no one's asking black parents how they felt about learning about white history for the longest time, this goes back to the teach the truth aspect of it. To me, it doesn't, I mean, even take an aspect of slavery. Learning about slavery did not make me hate myself because mm -hmm. it just made me more empathetic that one group struggled so struggled a lot and we should dismantle the system that this built up. It made me empathetic. Just like every kid in America learns about the American Revolution. Do you hate British people? No. You don't hate we don't hate British people. Just every their food. kid learns just about the Boston food. Massacre and, and everything. We don't yeah. go around like hating British people. Right. So to me, when it comes to education, people are trying to and I hate to say it, there are three kinds of people trying to use that terminology or use the attacks. People who wanted to fund public education to profit off it, to privatize it. People who have a political agenda who are using it to get votes because they want to scare parents. Mm -hmm. And the third are people who are so ignorant, they're buying into one and two. They're buying into the first and second groups. Because a lot of what's happening, it's just, it, to me, it's insane that I have librarians who are buying books for kids Parents are showing up to board meetings attacking them because they have a book about a rainbow, which has nothing to do about anything. My but gosh. it's become so political. And I hate to say it, but public schools are for everybody. If you don't like what's going on in public school, homeschool or private school, that's what they're for. You know, public schools are for yeah. common good. And parents, I hate to say it, but 
The whole idea of a public school is, is the fact that it benefits educating everybody. Literally say it again for the people in the back. Yeah. It's not political to me. It's like every kid should have an inclusive experience. So it's like, if it's political to you, then, then that person has deeper issues they should think about. Well, also, too, it's like sort of teaching the critical thinking lens of things. Mm, So it's like if you're teaching that, you could learn about something you dislike in school or you don't agree with. But if you're also learning critical thinking with that, like then it's up to you in that thought process to determine how you see that or how you, you know, regurgitate it or, you know, discuss with a friend, family member, whatever. So. Well, it's like I made up the point where they were like a lot of people want to bring religion back in school. But when they say religion, they mean Christianity, but they don't understand how insane that is because if you want to force kids to, to and again, I'm Catholic, if you want to force kids to to engage in Christian prayer, then you have to be open to allowing Jewish kids to have Jewish prayer and Muslim students to have Muslim prayer, or Muslim mm-hmm. prayers or Islamic prayer, which I honestly bet you the people who are pushing for Christian prayer do not want that one bit. 100%. And to me, it's like that's that, but that's the agenda. You know, it's, yeah. to me, it's it's got to either be all or nothing. There's no, there's no handpicking what you're allowed to do. Totally. Plus it like also tries to set this, like the tone of like how much religiosity like someone's at, like for me, like I'm of like Jewish descent, I'm not religious at all. So even if it was like, okay, everyone can do it. Everyone can participate. I want to participate in any of the religious Mishigas. So like, how does, that doesn't make it equal in any way. It doesn't like even the playing field. It just really makes a mountain out of a molehill. So safe to say we're on the same page, but we got to also talk about some of the solutions here. And you are behind the American Teacher Act. So can you tell us a little bit about what it is, how it's engaged with the Teacher Salary Project, and give us sort of the run of the show here? So it's it's funny because I use my platform. I teach in New Jersey. I do pretty well. I, I work other jobs like most teachers. So financially, I do well. My salary is sustainable. What I like, do I think I deserve a lot more? Absolutely. I feel like I deserve five times what I make. So that's the effort and energy and time I put in. And for the longest time, people have argued that, you know, again, everything I'm talking about has happened long before me about arguing about teacher salaries. Mm-hmm. For me, parents are showing up to board meetings complaining about what's going on in schools and libraries. If I was a parent and I found out my child's teacher was working a second job, or if my child's teacher was begging for supplies online, or if my child's teacher was so mentally burned out they were thinking of leaving, I would be at every board meeting to make sure that my child's teacher had everything they needed, could focus solely on teaching. But Mm -hmm. for some reason, we've accepted the fact that teachers have become martyrs, that they're expected to work extra jobs, that they're expected to accept the low pay, that they're expected to, to get their supplies. And I'll be honest, I didn't experience sexism until I became a teacher because teaching is predominantly female yeah. and we do not value the work of a, of a woman. It is considered a hobby. Even though edgic teaching is considered one of the most important professions, it is the only important profession where you have to work other professions just to continue doing your main one. And like to me, that is the, the selling fact on how if teaching was 78% men, it would be a six-figure job. You know, I shouldn't 100%. have to become an administrator to support a family on a teaching salary. I don't want to leave the classroom. Yeah. So for the longest time, there have been people who've been pushed, who've been pushing bills or trying to push bills through that increased teacher pay. It is definitely more of a local issue, not even a state issue. It's it's local. Because if I taught two towns over from where I live, I'd make a hundred thousand dollars instead of seventy-five. So there is obviously discrepancies depending on cost of living and other factors. This bill, which the teacher salary project, these amazing former educators, I feel like if you ever want to get anything done, you've got to ask moms or former teachers. They're the two most powerful groups and the two most intelligent, proactive, 
aggressive groups like Moms Demand Action, which is an amazing organization. But yeah. the Teacher Salary Project, I'm sorry, Ellen Sharer, Nina Vey Caligari, Bob Willoughby, three former, and Catherine Bassett, New Jersey teacher, four people created this, this policy, wrote it up, reached out to Congress people, been pushing it for a long time, got Frederico Wilson of Florida to sponsor it. We're now seeking a Republican co-sponsor because we want to be bipartisan. The sole premise of it is to establish a federal minimum wage of 60000 a year, which is still nothing. And and again, in certain states, I think the average starting salary is like 40-something thousand. It wouldn't affect me. It also doesn't affect veteran teachers, which I understand veteran teachers are going to say, you know, well, what about me? And we can't, we can't help everybody. We have to kind of pick and choose our battles. But the goal of this is to create a federal minimum wage to provide more resources for teachers so they don't have to spend their own money and to create a pay scale so that way districts can increase what they're paying their teachers, plus to focus on recruitment and retention. So it's going to start campaigns to focus on recruiting teachers. We shouldn't be begging people to go into one of the most, one of the most grateful, one of the most empowering professions there is. But I, I think... Yeah. I think teaching is like out of annual or out of starting salaries for college majors, teaching is like 43rd. So there's 42 other college majors which pay better starting than teachers. And I think that has to change. So the American Teacher Act is a starting point to just bring awareness to, let's just set the foundation uh, at yeah. 60,000. So that way other states already met that. You know, I think Delaware's already started 60,000. New Mexico's already started a minimum salary of 60,000. Other states are doing it. But this kind of just works as a federal level. And then from there, we could focus on current teacher pay and other aspects of education. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned teacher retention and obviously, you know, low salaries is one piece of that. Can you kind of also share the backstory of why we're having issues with teacher retention across the country beyond just, you know, even salary? It's, I mean, it pays important. Yeah. But for the longest time, Again, as teachers, I hate to say it, but we've been turning into martyrs to a certain extent where it's always for the kids. Like sacrifice your life and your livelihood for the kids. And the reason we do this is for the kids. You know, that if, if it wasn't for the kids, there wouldn't be a single teacher left. So there have been all these problems. Like there's always been a high teacher turnover, but the, the pandemic kind of exasperated everything because it further exposed all the expectations of teachers and then it added on a hundred new more responsibilities that were impossible to meet. I mean, teacher mental health was destroyed during the pandemic because of everything we were going through. And then obviously fast forward now to not only are you, you're taking on more responsibilities for the same low pay, still extra resources, extra burden, but now you're getting politicized and demonized and attacked politically. So now yeah. you throw the political attacks on. And it's just, for every time I post something, it's funny when people are like, stop complaining, teachers knew what they were getting into. I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know that I had to buy my own supplies. I didn't know that I had to work extra jobs. And first of all, if someone's dedicating their life to helping children and they're saying we need help and you're saying they're complaining, like to me, that's the most insane thing in the world. Yeah, that's like yeah. telling somebody who's on the ground begging for help saying, stop complaining, you know, and they're literally begging for you to help them. And it's so to me, it's I use my platform to elevate teachers' voices. But for every time I post something, I get a hundred messages of teachers saying, I just turned in my resignation, I can't post it, I can't this, I can't do it anymore. I miss my kids. I I, I miss my students so much and it breaks my heart because when teachers say they're leaving teaching is the toughest decision they've ever had to make. It is. Because to me, it's like I would have left teaching 10 years ago if not for my students. I can make a lot more money doing a hundred other things, but I love teaching. 
I would say this. I love teaching. I hate being a teacher. Teaching gives me life. Being a teacher is sucking the life out of me. Mm. And I think only teachers could fully understand that. So now everything has been exasperated. And now what states are doing is they're lowering the standard for teachers to get people in, which again, would you want to get on a plane with a pilot who passed this a, a quick program to become a pilot? Would you let someone perform surgery on you who, who went through a speedy program on it? So lowering the standards is the complete opposite of what they should do, but they're trying mm -hmm. to fix a problem very, very quickly. But for me, the teacher retention is something that it's going to get worse. Uh, and I hate to say it, I don't want to lose every teacher before we actually really appreciate teachers. Yeah, absolutely. A thousand percent. And it feels like we're already on that pathway and have been for like a long time. But I have a bunch of friends that previously were teachers and left the teaching profession. And the pandemic was like the last straw for them. They're like, I just, I cannot, I'm so burnt out and I'm not getting paid nearly enough. And one of the things that they also flagged was administrator behavior. I had one friend that had a really creepy administrator. I had another friend that was like, I just can't even deal with the fact that like also they're being paid so much more and they're never, they've never even stepped foot in a classroom to actually teach. Like they come by and knock on the door and say hello from time to time. And that's about it. And so with that, I sort of want to ask about that dynamic. You know, you have these administrators that are being paid a higher rate, but aren't most of the time teachers or have any previous experience. And like, how does that play out? How, like, how does that happen? And like, I, I know we've noted, but very specifically, it seems like in the world of teaching, like it's a role you need no experience for, you know, it's not like with uh, your point about like surgery, you wouldn't you know, hire a, a surgeon without experience or have someone administrating there that doesn't have some understanding of it. So what's the deal with teaching? Why is that a dynamic that plays out? Well, I, I want to go back to the point I mentioned before, how 70% of all teachers are female. So so 22% are male. Out of administration, 70, I think it's 77% of all administrators are men. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's the complete polar opposite. Even though men make up only 20% of the education population, they make up close to 80% of the administrative roles. I mean, there are superintendents in local towns that are making as much as the president of the United States. And to me, that's absolutely insane. And I'm not saying, I mean, administrators, we're in this together. I don't blame administrators for what happens. Like take schools, for example. You know, there's a shortage of teachers. So now they have to get subs. There's no subs. So now they have to ask teachers like myself. Today, I covered a class because we didn't have a substitute or teacher. So now I'm using my prep period to cover what I should be doing my schoolwork for my students, but I'm not because they have no other choice. So now I'm burnt out. So I may take a sick day now because I need a day off because now I'm overwhelmed. So now it's a vicious cycle yeah. of teachers who show up are getting, and I don't blame them, but at the same time, it's not our problem. My problem is my students, but they're trying, it's, so we're getting asked to do more because again, if somebody posted something where it's like the great thing about doing your work really well is you get asked to do other people's work, you know, it's like that'll. And it's the same yeah. thing in every job. And so now we're burnt out. So it's the vicious attrition cycle. And when it comes to administrative roles, like their job is tough. Like I, they deal with a lot. Is it warranted to make, and like, that's the running joke we have whenever somebody from administration asks, it's like, you're making twice my salary. You figured out, you know, you figured out. And it's mm -hmm. at the same time, we are in this together. Right. So I would argue more about superintendent salaries because to me, it's like local superintendents making a half million dollars and then making as much as, or if not more than the president, in some states, it's like one of the highest paid public positions outside of like a college football coach. To me, that's an insane thing. But again, that's why men leave teaching to become administrators. I don't want to leave teaching to become administrators so I could support a family on an education salary. 
but it's definitely, it's an interesting dynamic. And it, there is a battle at times because we're trying to do our job. They're trying to do theirs. And sometimes they do conflict. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I have a question that is not on our list, but it's within right. this sphere. Do superintendents or administrators set teacher salaries at all? Like, do they have any role in that? They don't. The Board of Ed usually tends to do that, okay. or the union will negotiate with the Board of Ed, and the Board of Ed will approve the teacher salary or the district salary. So it's even, I mean, that's why it's so insane that from school district to school district, and I'll be honest, like I'm 20 years at my high school, four years as a student. I've spent more time in this building where I am right now than I did outside of it. And I've been offered opportunities to make more money leaving school districts. And the only thing that's keeping me here is loyalty. Mm-hmm. But at this point now in my life, I'm like, loyalty only takes you. They're not being loyal to me. So why should I be loyal to them? Yeah. And that's kind of the point. And we lost, we've lost a few teachers this year who are 20 years in in this district because other districts are offering more money. Right. And to me, it's like, that's, if there's a, sh- if there's an, if there's openings in your district, it's probably not a good district to work for. Right. Because you shouldn't, there shouldn't be openings. It's like, if, if you have a turnover in your business, you're probably not a good leader. You probably got to reevaluate your business model. People should be begging to work for you and people should be staying when they do get a job with you. And to me, that's the ultimate sign of a district. How how many openings do they have and what's the turnover? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about solutions because we want to know, like, how do teachers get the pay that they deserve? What, where can we start? What are the mechanisms? Like the school board, you said it's not always like state, state government. Like, can you kind of explain what you think really is a great pathway to potentially find a solution here? Uh, I mean, I, I have solutions too. I feel like this is like a therapy session. I feel like this is a great therapy. <laughs> thing. I feel so good Let now. I can teach Let it, it week. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there are so many solutions. And I used to think federally, like even with the American Teacher Act, that's a necessary act. I'm hoping it, it gets some attention and traction, but everything starts with local school boards. I mean, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a teacher, know a teacher or have a child to care what happens in your community. Yeah. To me, it's like the community, schools are the center of every community. When you invest in education, you defer and destroy so many problems later on. So my, my call to parents would be very simple. If you're a parent, show up to board meetings, find out what resources your, your child's teacher has, find out what's going on in their district, fight for their behalf. Because if I was a parent, I would, I would trust the person who spends 180 days with my child and want to set them up to succeed so they can be the best teacher for my child. If my child's teacher is in survival mode, the academic experience is not going to be that powerful. So the first call to action would be for parents. The second call to action is to be within a community. Like it's every one of us, I like to think, had some important educator in our life. I'm hoping it's more than one. Breaks my heart when I feel like people didn't have a very positive school experience. But I like to think we are who we are because of the educators in our lives. Like I had a great, my mom was amazing. But it's my educators who kind of gave me the affirmation, the support, and the encouragement and pushed me when I needed it the most. And I like to think that everyone has a positive experience. So to me, this is something that is not just, it's not just an investment for parents, it's an investment for society. And I feel like the call to action would be to, to not only advocate for local communities, show up to board meetings, speak out, vote for candidates who are supportive of education, who speak highly of it, who want to invest in students, schools, and teachers. Don't support anybody who wants to take any money out of, out of the one thing that our community is built on. And to me, that's the ultimate call to action. You don't have to be a parent to care about what happens to children. If, you, if you're an empathetic person, you would want the child to have the best education. Yeah. 
Oh, there's our oh, jinx. We always Sorry. have a jinx. Well, I said a hundred. You said a thousand. So we're gonna switch. We're gonna make oh, okay. sure we're seeing numbers. Struggle. Yeah, big struggle for us. Well, I do want to talk about another money element of this as well, and that has to do with teachers paying for their education. I know quite a few that definitely are in the hole as a result of having to get master's degrees and secondary education, all that type of thing for, you know, becoming a teacher. And so I'm curious if like there's any solutions also sort of like in your mind that have, you know, rolled around in terms of being able to fund teachers and getting additional education or reimbursing them or, you know, like one thing like I was thinking of is like a military style program where, which sounds so bad saying military style program, I'll rebrand that at some point, but you know what I'm saying, where it's like, Okay, like the government pays for, you know, your education and you are essentially you have to work in a particular school district for three years or whatever it may be. Like, do you think that there's solutions from an education, even educating teachers perspective that could also help things and alleviate some of the. Absolutely. Our our district used to used to pay back, buy back your credits for you. So they would do nine credits a year. So you can actually take the classes and they would reimburse you for the nine credits. They don't do that anymore because financial situations and budgets. When I was in DC for the American Teacher Act last weekend, we were meeting with, with elected officials. I was a part of a panel on teacher shortage. And one of the major proposals, which some communities are suggesting is loan forgiveness for teachers all right? or, or contracts with districts where we'll pay for you to get your master's, but you have to teach here for four years. Or you have to teach here for six years or whatever it may be. And there's all these different, I mean, we see all these aspects of loan forgiveness, but there's so many educators who are indebted because they had to get their master's or they had to get their doctorate. And now they're obviously in a hole because obviously education has become so insanely expensive. But I, I love the idea of, I mean, more so investing in a community saying, you know, we'll pay for you to get your master's or doctorate if you teach in this community. Because for the school district, it benefits the district anyway. It's an yeah. investment. It's no different than investing in a student. To me, it's like that's much more of an inequitable and fair proposal, either statewide or federally. If you teach in our state, we'll, we'll, we'll help reimburse you for your master's or we'll help reimburse you for your doctorate. So I feel like that sort of investment is better. I feel like the whole idea of loan forgiveness is very negative. As I'm being, I'm sorry. Thank you. Yeah, they're cleaning the classrooms now too. So no, no announcements, but. <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked yeah, most students came in and see something here. going on and come in. <laughs> but I definitely feel like, again, if you want the best educators in your community, you should invest in those individuals. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move into our audience questions because we got a few people were like, yes, submit. So we want to run through some of these okay. with you. So kicking it off is a long one. I got to really read for it. So hopefully I'm not getting <laughs> reading comprehension is reading comprehension right now. <laughs> Here we go. When I was teaching, my school had me teaching each grade only four sessions of history, civics each week versus ELA and math, which had eight sessions per week. There was a total lack of funding for anything that wasn't ELA or math because of standardized tests. Is this not a problem that there isn't investment in teaching history and civics? How do we lobby for funding for this to be prioritized? I mean, great question. And it's one of those questions I think we were mentioning before about things like math. I'll be honest. I mean, I think there's basic needs for calculus, but I haven't used calculus in 30 years. I listen to music. I look at art. I consume entertainment every day. And I feel like it goes back to the testing. You know, we, we devalue, I mean, independent thought. We devalue things like civics. We devalue things like history. 
for math and science because those are testable subjects. So that's why the first programs to get removed are the art programs. So all I think about is how many amazing artists and musicians we're missing out on because their school forced them to focus on math. And the other irony I point out is like, you know, take someone like Jimi Hendrix or Picasso. You know, we would not have known they were geniuses if we evaluate them based on a standardized test because that's not their gift. And mm -hmm. it's like, I know so many students who are not good test takers or so many people who are not good test takers who are now the best at what they do, who are multimillionaires, insanely successful. Yeah. And I think we have to reevaluate the, the, the system in general, because if we put so much onus on testing, we're going to continue to lose the civics, the history, the art, the culture classes, which to me are more important for life than, sorry, calculus and algebra. Unless I'm going to become a scientist or a biophysicist or anything along those lines, you don't really need those subjects. Yeah. True. I also I have yet to use calc, so. <laughs> yeah, I was not a great student and leading up until college. I just like didn't, nothing resonated with me. I just, but getting but to college. how that affected college. your psyche too. It affected you to question oh God, your own time. intelligence and your own abilities. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, but it's crazy going into college and starting to take classes that were interesting to me, how much I like blossomed in those years. And it's like kind of a shame that you go your entire childhood through the school and education system and you don't always get those opportunities to blossom because those that education isn't always being provided. And like even like the way that critical thinking and like that type of education isn't prioritized in like the K through 12 curriculum either. Then I'm, I'm recording something. You guys can't come in. I'll grab your coat. All right. He left his coat in my classroom. <laughs> Why are you coming now, Jonah? All right. Jonah was student of the month, so I'll let it slide. But no, I was just talking about like the just the vast difference I at least felt going from like high school to college and how much that learning shifted and like how I learned to critically think. And I think all of my education that I now like deem valuable in my postgrad adult life came from college and came from kind of like more, I guess, just tailored education so it's just interesting to see all that play out as well and that's the thing too it's like we're reevaluating education in general because like I, my school offers so many amazing programs and courses like we have a cosmetology program we have vocational program we have nursing we have yeah. everything you can imagine which i think is great like we have a pathways program where if a student wants to pursue a trade they can go down that road and i and i think of the ideology of like how we create this imagery of like if you don't do well in school you're gonna be a failure if you don't go to college you're gonna be a failure and I think as a society, we are reevaluating what's important in education. But it's also, yeah. I tell my students all the time, like, I love, I excelled in history and phys ed and classes I liked. I didn't do well in calculus or algebra because I wasn't as passionate about those subjects. Some students yeah. thrive in that. But I think, I, I think we are as a society learning to not put as much emphasis on certain academics over others because they're all essential in some way. Yeah. But the same thing, like when I went to, I, I feel like I got a foundation for learning in high school, but it's when I went to college, which I completely was engaged because I was taking all the classes that I chose to take. Yeah. And I was paying forward. So it's a little more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Details, I used details. to cry in chemistry class. It was just like, it was so hard for me. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I would cry at my homework. It's the only time I needed a tutor. It was traumatizing. <laughs> PTSD from Cam. Major. Oh my God. Honestly, my no, PTSD was Were you in AP French. class? I'm assuming you were both in AP classes as well. Oh, sure wasn't. Just regular no? chemistry. I, oh my God. I kind of, I would cry. Oh my God. I did yeah. APs, but not, not Cam. Absolutely not Cam. That would have 
been one like straight road to family. I do have a Jersey question though, because I was a Jersey person as well. Do you guys still have the like requirements where you had to take like elective classes as well? Because like we require we physical education was- and there are elective requirements. So we we're one of the, I think one of two states that still requires physical education to graduate. Which yeah. again, I mean, is is you think should be mandatory, but if for certain athletes, you shouldn't have to take gym if you're playing a sport or involved in activity or yes. something. That's Thank how my you. school I literally was. played sports all year. And I was like, why I'm going to get injured in gym because some schmuck is going to like volleyball slam in my face. And then <laughs> I'm not going to be able to be on the lacrosse. It just, oh my God, I would rant about that all the time. Although pickleball was a great unit. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. lovey. interesting. Okay. I was curious if you guys still had that. I do have one more audience question. And that is, why isn't there funding for needed resources so often? For example, paraeducators, which are vital, but paid hourly. And and that's that's the conversation that came up too in the bill. Where power is going to be included in the bill, and and we we weren't able to tackle that too, just because contractually their contracts are different than teachers. I mean, aides, paras, everything in class support. We call them ICS ICS teachers in class support. Uh, they're so underpaid. Special education teachers tend to be underpaid. So there's so many other aspects that need to be tackled in education because again, and I hate to say it, but unions do dictate a lot. So what their unions willing to fight for and what their unions willing to give up. And the budget is so limited that some of the resources are allocated to one group much more than the other. So there, I mean, I will say with my heart of hearts that uh, powers and, and aids are so underpaid. At the same time, it's it's one of those things that it has to be addressed the same way the teacher pay has to be addressed. And it's like, I have so many friends who are, because every time I mention the American Teacher Act, everyone's like, our power's included. And I hate to say it, but they're not included in this particular act, but it doesn't mean they won't be included or this isn't the stepping stone to include that. Right. I also just technical question, like are special education teachers qualified differently than like, I what would be not like a regular teacher, like teacher, like, is there also a yeah. terminology in there? I don't want to mess so, it up. No, you're, you're, you're correct. There's special ed teachers who are special ed certified and regular ed certified so they can teach both. Mm-hmm. I mean, I honestly, any one of my students who pursues education, I tell them they get dual certified because they'll guarantee their job because it sadly, it means that they could pay you for one job instead of paying two other people. So they have a special ed certified and a regular ed certified. So they could have students with with IEPs, which are individual education plans in your class, and they don't need a special ed teacher in there too. So they'll benefit from hiring one person for two jobs, which again is also a problem because you're doing two jobs. But yeah. special ed cert is technically different from regular ed certification. Got it. Interesting. Oy, well, lots a, of work to do. Yeah. Lots, such lots a, of work to do. What's your like prognosis? for what will happen with teacher pay retention in like the next few years, sort of like a closing note? My my optimistic side is we'll reinvest in education, we'll support teachers, we'll support schools, we'll reevaluate how, how society treats and values its educators. Um, my pessimistic side is like any... You've been in a relationship before. Have you ever told someone to fix something and they fixed it right away? Or did you have to leave them before they realized you were serious about it? Like, I don't want to come to the point yeah. where we have to break up and everybody leave teaching before they realize that there's a problem that needs to be fixed. Mm, and the pessimistic side realizes that a few things are going to happen. So many teachers are going to leave that they're just going to allow anyone to be a teacher with any sort of diploma, which will only delude and, and muddy the education system even more. And it'll mean that your child's sitting in front of someone who's not qualified. So that's my concern because that's what a lot of districts are doing. They're trying to... F- 
put a Band-Aid over a bullet wound rather than solve the problem long-term. They're trying to fix it right now, which is the worst thing to do. Um, but I mean, I just, I'm in this profession for the long haul. If I leave teaching, it's because it's not because of the students, uh, even though them being on their phones is my biggest headache every damn day. If I could if, just get rid of cell phones, that's, 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 that's the biggest nightmare. Why do I feel yeah. like we've had a teacher say that on this show before, haven't we? I I'm mean, so, or did I just have the biggest deja vu moment ever? Because I swear I, we've heard that before, but I, I'm sure you've I'm heard sure that. I'm sure it's a universal. Yes. I mean, I've, I've been a student who's gotten statement. their phone taken away. So me too. I, I tell my, I show my students all the time, all the studies that show when you are not on your cell phone, you perform academically much better. Schools that ban cell phones outperform schools that do not. Mm. And it's so, there's so many, so many things. First, a kid not being mentally ready to handle social media when they're in middle school. You know, we see anxiety go up, depression, girls with body image issues. Everything says stay off your phone, but it's that addictive thing. And I always joke around. It's like, they're like, they tell teachers, be more engaging. You know, that's like me telling, I hate to say it, but me telling a heroin addict who has heroin in front of him saying, look at me. Don't look at the drug that you are addicted to. Yeah. And it's so like, that's my big problem. I'm sorry. I digress. Back to education. No, no, no. There was a tangent for sure. That was necessary. But we, we love, I love what I do. I, I love seeing my students succeed. I love interacting in your lives. Every teacher does. Mm-hmm. And the fact that so many people are leaving their dream jobs should scare everyone. That is the learning loss everyone should be talking about. Totally. Well, to end, can you first give people, I guess, anything that they can do to kind of help some of these things that we talked about, whether that's you know, get involved with their local government or beyond different action items that might be an easy first step to kind of help this, these issues that we talked about. And then also tell everyone where they can find you on social and all the things. I know it sounds like a broken record. It sounds, I know everyone's life is so complicated, but board meetings are often even on Zoom nowadays. So I would say, find out your local board meeting, find out your local board members. If there's a board election, actually look into seeing what their interest is, what their plan is, what they care about. Because people don't realize how powerful the, the Board of Education is within a local community. They make a lot of decisions. They have a lot of control. So it would be to either attend a board meeting, watch a board meeting, and, and vote for people who you think are going to put that school district in the best opportunity to succeed. And people who are not living off fear, people who actually have positive ideas, who know have, have or want to inflict some positive change. As far as finding me, at Nicholas Ferroni for Instagram and Twitter, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S-F-E-R-R-O-N-I. And as much as I'm making fun of cell phones, at Mr. Ferroni on TikTok. And the only reason I have it's TikTok was because one of my students made me get a TikTok because I allowed mm-hmm. them to make TikToks for class. Mm, so it? we actually uh-huh. you use TikTok. I'm like, if they're going to be on their phones, I'm going to take the fun out of everything that they're doing. <laughs> So they have to analyze historical TikToks. They have to make historical TikToks. They have That's to, smart. Ooh. Try to make them media literate. Try to make them aware yes. of the content they're consuming. That's huge. So, like That's part of the future too is like sometimes you do have to educate around the phones and how to use them properly instead of maybe taking them away as well. I think that's super smart. And meeting people where they are, which is definitely yeah. something we talk about all the time. So we got you on yeah. that. Yes. And also, like, just TikToks. Like, do they see you on TikTok? Like, does this happen? Like, do you pop up on their For You page? They do, and they joke around a lot about it because the irony, the students who had me make one are now upset because I have a stronger following they do. (laughs) At the same time, I get them opportunities because of TikTok. Like, I had a few of my students last year, BuzzFeed had, I, I got them paid by BuzzFeed to analyze TikToks about school and to do stuff like that. So 
cool. I exploit every opportunity I have and every resource to give them opportunity and give them experiences that I think will help them later on in life. So yeah. it's it's definitely a part of our class, but it's again, like I'm here to see them do well. And if I can use my platform to elevate them and promote them, I gladly will. Amen. Love it. Amen. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us and getting this conversation going around teacher pay, solutions around education and more. And we look forward to having you back on. Yeah, just to completely fully trigger you, I'm going to send you both over my last quiz and I do expect it back in an oh hour. Oh my God. <laughs> How no, you don't rude. understand how triggering that is for me. Oh my God. <laughs> Guys, Thank I was the so worst. Much. Honestly, Thank do send it over. I'm kind of curious to see how I do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.